Esther chapter 7, verse 1. I'm sorry, that just sounded a little Monty Python to me when I said that. (laughs) Esther chapter 7, verse 1. Not verse 2, just yet, but okay. Now, the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. And the king said to Esther on the second day also, as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. If this scene were set in the Old West, the marshal and the hired gun would be standing in the middle of the street facing each other. We've come to the climax of the conflict that has created the plot, uh, the showdown between Esther and Haman. And only one of them is going to come out alive. Everything in the first two verses is familiar to us. Uh, The story of Esther opened with a feast, and there has been one feast after another in each chapter. Uh, Wine has flowed like a steady stream through the story. And also familiar to us is the king's question. In fact, it sounds like a standard form. Uh, Please fill out this application before you go into the court. So when the king asks, what is your petition and request? You can answer, my petition is this and my request is that. Uh, All you have to do is fill in the blanks. So, so here we are in a space that feels familiar. Uh, the, the, the themes are well known to us. Verse 3. Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given to me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent, for the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance of the king. Okay, Esther finally reveals what she wants. She began the same way as before, if I found favor in your sight. But this time she spilled her guts. Um, She's using the standard form, Here's my petition. Here's my request. All right. Um, Now, if the king is sitting there and he has assumed that she's come to ask for a lavish gift or something that most husbands find heartbreaking to remodel the bathroom (laughs) or the kitchen, um, well, then he's in for a huge surprise. And Haman is going to experience another shock coming in a day of unpleasant surprises. She says, my petition is for my life and my request is for the lives of my people. Until now, no one knew that she was Jewish. In fact, the king still doesn't seem to... uh, to get the connection at first. Now, I think that right at this point, there's a pause. 
Uh, it doesn't read that way uh, in the New American sta uh, Standard Translation. But every once in a while, when someone in Scripture is talking, they end a sentence, and then they begin speaking again. And generally that means that the other person in the dialogue is speechless. And I think that both the king and Haman are sitting there in stunned silence. Someone is out to kill you. Someone is, is trying to destroy your people. And so she goes on to explain, we have been sold. We might say, we've been sold out. Um, uh, we've been handed over to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She uses precisely the words written in the king's edict. Now, we know that Haman is the one who authored that edict to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. <clears throat> and the king just gave him his signature ring to make it law. But <clears throat> the king doesn't even know that the law was passed against the Jews. Haman did not specify that to him. He, said, he just said there's a certain people uh, who are troublemakers. <clears throat> she goes on to say, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women. And what she says after that is the most obscure Hebrew in all the book of Esther, and interpreters don't really know what to do with it. There are two general translations. One goes, if we had just been sold as slaves, I would have kept silent, except that the king would have suffered great loss. In other words, should the whole Jewish population be wiped out, you'd end up regretting that. Or the other possibility is what we have here, more or less, I would not have annoyed, annoyed you, if we're only going to be sold as slaves and not killed, I would, have not, I would not have annoyed you with something so trivial. You know, that, that wouldn't be worth bothering the king with. So take your pick. Uh, verse 5. Then King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would presume to do this? Esther said, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. <laughs> then Haman became terrified <laughs> before the king and queen, and rightly so. Uh, the king wants to know immediately the source of the threat, and he asks two questions, who and where. When she answers the first question, the who question, she does not just give Haman's name. It's like, that's not enough. She, you're asking who. If you want to know who he is, I have to tell you about his character as well. He is the foe and enemy of the Jews, and he's wicked. This, this wicked Haman. And with the answer to the who question, there's no need to answer the where question. Because she's able to point to him when she says, this wicked Haman. And... Uh, Hearing this, Haman is understandably terrified before the king and queen. The word before uh, is a flexible metaphor. The Hebrew is panim. Literally translated, it means faces. Um, but it also means presence. Uh, 
uh, or to stand before someone, we live before the face of God uh, or in the presence of God. And so here he is in the presence of the king and queen. He's just been pointed out, you know, and I'm sure he's looking around saying, well, is there another Haman in the room? And uh, no, there's, there's not. <clears throat> Verse 7, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from, the queen, from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined to him against the king. Um, now the, the storyteller focuses on the two male characters, uh, King Xerxes and Haman. The king arose, this is a first, because so far all through the story he has sat on his throne. Um, but here he rises up, uh, which is unusual. People rise out of respect for him or they kneel before him, but he gets up because he's angry. And uh, this is, in fact, a big deal. He retreated to the palace garden, no doubt to clear his head a little bit, to, to think about what he's just heard, uh, maybe calm himself down to come to some kind of conclusion about it. And re remember, up until this point, the king hasn't been able to make decisions for himself. He's received counsel from his wise counselors. He's received counsel from his servants. And now he goes to try to figure out this issue all by himself. But he gets help uh, with it, actually, when he comes back. Um, again, in our story, anger and wine are linked. Uh, Wine, which is usually associated with joy and festivity. Uh, well, it's out of the question here. Uh, now we see its connection to heightened emotional states. And, and I, I think that the storyteller did not intend for us to miss this because wine is mentioned too many times in this book and in this sort of context. And so I will just say, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. Uh, in the book of Proverbs, there's this beautiful <laughs> description of a, of a drunken person who, uh, to watch them stagger down the street, you would think they were on board a ship in a storm, you know, falling from rail to rail. And uh, they say, oh, I'm miserable. I'm seeing horrible visions. Uh, 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 this is so terrible. Uh, when can I do this again? <laughs> really, you know, and I, I'm sure that the, the wise man who penned that proverb thought it was like this, uh, because if you know anything about it, that's, that's addiction, that's alcoholism. Um, I'm destroying myself. I, I need to get drunk again. Um, and I, you know, I just want to say, I, don't, I used to have, because I was raised with it, a problem with any alcoholic beverages. And uh, it was never in our home, never allowed it in my home, my first home. Um, and I, but I don't have a problem with it anymore. I, underst you know, I understand it. But I also understand it's very dangerous. And some of us can never touch it again. And I want to bless that for everyone here in recovery and, and bless you in the name of God to stay there. Um, you know, I worked in this 
I, I guess you call it a sober living home, is for any kind of substance abuse. And um, I was there for almost two years, and since that time, four or five of the young people, I mean, they were all under 25, have overdosed and died. And I love these kids. I love Jason. Jason and I had some interesting conversations because he is far more intelligent than I am very talented. I heard he played the piano, and there was a piano there in the home. I said, could you play something for me? And he sat down, and he played this incredibly complicated piece. And I said, what is that? He said, it's Rachmaninoff. And I said, what? You just memorized it? He said, yeah. He said, I, you know, I first you know, read the music and played it, but I memorized it because I like it so much. Brilliant young man. I, I loaned him a book. I could get it back, but yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, excuse me, excuse me. My values are a little bit screwed up when it comes to books. <laughs> but um, oh man, um, this other kid who, when I first met him, he's like a, a good two inches taller than me and incredibly buff, and very handsome young man. Um, didn't see him for a while. He came back. Uh, he relapsed and came back, and I didn't recognize him. He was like a beanpole. He had, he had transformed and not for the better. And uh, later on, he died uh, as a result of an overdose. It's just too hard. Um, I realize I'm not built for that. Uh, I, I love the successes, and I love whatever part I can play in that. Okay, so I've digressed, um, but here it is in the text, and I just feel like I have to beat you up with it for a while. <laughs> okay, so um, Haman, the, the king moves to the garden. Haman also makes his move, but not with the king. He stays behind. He could see that the king already had determined his fate. He, he read it on the expression of his face when he went out of the room, uh, and he knew he was done for. His only possible hope was if he could soften up Esther because he saw now she had all the influence with the king, and he had none. So he's, he's going to beg now. Verse 8. Now, when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he even assault the queen with me in the house? As the word went out of the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harvona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. And the king said, Hang him high. Oh, see, hang him on it. <laughs> so they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. This is for Haman a dark comedy of errors. In the ancient Mideast, they did not sit in chairs when they ate their meals. Rather, they reclined at, at low tables, usually on cushions, or in the case of the wealthy, on a couch or bed-like couches. So that's where Esther is on her royal uh, couch. And Haman most likely fell at her feet. But that meant that he encroached on her personal space, and no one did that. 
you know, only eunuchs assigned to the queen were allowed to even get near her. But he was, he, he had crossed lines way too close. And, and I would say that desperation compelled him to commit this capital offense. You see, he could die just for this. And Haman's bad luck is that precisely at this moment when he's falling on the couch, the king re-enters the room. And, uh, and the king either assumed the worst or he attributed his own interpretation to what he saw. And he says, will he assault her? Will he violate her or force her even with the king present? I mean, it's like, it's like the most horrendous thing anyone in that room could imagine. And the king puts that on Haman and as the words go out of his mouth, the attendants cover Haman's face. Now, um, there are two flashbacks here to events we've already seen, in fact, in the last chapter. First, as the word went out of his mouth, we saw at the end of chapter 6 that while Haman was still having this conversation with his wife and counselors, while they were still talking, the king's servants arrived to bring him hastily to the king. So now as the words are going from the king's mouth, in other words, things are moving so fast now, no one even has time to finish a sentence before the next thing is happening. And the next thing is, of course, Haman's downfall. Then they covered Haman's head. And again, in chapter 6, verse 12, after his egregious humiliation um, before Mordecai, um, Haman had run home and he covered his own head. And there he had covered his own head to hide his shame from everyone. He, he, he did not want anyone seeing the expression on the face or recognizing him. It's kind of like, you know, when news cameras are on the criminal going from the courthouse to the car and they pull their jacket up over their head. You know, it's not really me. You know, it's a guy with the same name. Um, but we know who, who's underneath there. And, but Haman is trying to hide his shame, hide, hide who he is from everyone. He can't face the world now. Only this time, my guess is that his face is covered by the attendants to cover the condemned man so that he's out of the king's sight. From, from that instant, before the king's done speaking, he's out of sight. Now, we have seen, again, that Esther was provided with helpers. And uh, I think it, it was in the second week that I mentioned that that, that helper, uh, Hege, was very much like the valet that Katniss Aberdeen had in the movie Oh, what a, thank you, Hunger Games. Um, and that he, he decked her out to not only be beautiful, but to be unforgettable. And Hege had done the same thing for Esther, so that when she appeared before the king, he couldn't help but choose her. Um, there was also Hathak, who took messages between um, Mordecai and Esther after she was sequestered in the harem. And, and all through, there have been people who have like been on her side. And it's possible that the king's attendants felt an affinity for the Jews, that, that the servants were also perhaps 
of foreign people, which was typical in Persia to, to use even dignitaries from other countries as their slaves. Um, and they, they also felt oppressed or like a minority, like the Jews. So it could be that they, they favored Esther and Mordecai for that reason. Um, but here is Herbona, who conveniently volunteers information to the king. Um, he, and he provided details and a reminder. The details are, oh, uh, by the way, king, just for your information at this strategic moment, uh, Haman built a gallows 75 feet high in his backyard to hang Mordecai on. Oh, yes, and Mordecai, he was the one who spoke out in favor for the king and protected you from assassination. So, he, so this bad guy assaulting your wife wanted to hang this good guy who saved your life. Herbona, what a cool guy. You know, it's like, <laughs> and um, it, it's so easy now for the king to make a decision. Hang him on it. You know, done deal. You know, short sentence, expeditious sentence, hang him on it. It's, it's dealt with. And, and, and the irony is that when... Haman hits bottom, he's higher than he ever was before. Impaled on the 75-foot pole. Well, it is an irony, and the story is full of ironies and turnarounds. And, and there's, there is this up-and-down movement for him. In fact, as he goes down, his enemy Mordecai goes up. And what Haman was given previously, Mordecai will be given in the next chapter, including his house and possessions. But I'm sure he removed the gallows. The king's anger now subsided. The same thing happened in chapter 2, verse 1, after he'd gotten rid of Vashti, the queen. And as we've seen, anger has fueled the plot, um, both when anger flared up and also when it subsided. It's, and it's been a kind of energy running through the story. Uh, Haman's anger, the king's anger, uh, a, a collective anger at the scandal of Queen Vashti. And it's been an energy for motivation, for planning and implementing plans and, and so on. All emotion, all of our emotions are a form of energy. And I'll, I'll mention that in a sec. But there, there are two insights that we can take home, and, and at least two, because these are just two that I want to stress. You can find your own two on your own time. Um, I th but I think that this will be helpful for us. The first is practical, uh, of practical value, and the second is more spiritual value. <coughs> Esther had risked her life to save her people. And reading in between the lines, we can say, say that she surrendered her life to the will of God. Uh, even though God's not mentioned, uh, she takes this risk saying, if I perish, I perish. That's a complete surrender because she's risking everything. And she surrenders her life to what must appear to her as the, as the will of God and commits herself to it through fasting and having others fast with her and for her. When I do this, when I surrender my life to 
the will of God. I'm choosing God's will over my own, and I'm accepting God's will as my own. And though this is not my experience yet, I have it on the authority of a brilliant and godly theologian that as we do this, eventually our will becomes indistinguishable from God's will. In other words, his will is so much our own, we think of it as our own. There's no more conflict. Of course, you know, that means accepting a lot of bad things and being able to say, thank you, God, I don't understand why, but since there's no way to get around this, I accept it as coming from you or you having a plan for it or a plan for me in it. And uh, so help me to walk that path. But in surrendering to God's will, when I get up each morning, I step into a day where God has already been at work. He's already making things happen. He's already preparing doors to open before I get to them. Um, It's almost like he's given me a kit, and all I have to do is put the pieces together. You know, all I have to do is, is show up and be there with whatever gifts I have, whatever talent or knowledge or whatever it is. <clears throat> now, if I have the time and the know-how and the tools, I'm a do-it-yourself kind of guy because I'm cheap. Uh, Barbara isn't necessarily really pleased with my work because a difference between us, and I think I've chosen the high road, is that she's a perfectionist and I'm not. (coughs) So she wonders, why don't those two joints go together? And I say, they will after I've used enough putty and paint. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Um, You know, a a ton of putty covers a multitude of sins. That's my do-it-yourself philosophy. Um, But when it comes to the will of God, never. Never do it yourself. Never. Okay, God, I can handle this. (coughs) I know too well. I'm dependent on him for everything, and I want to surrender to him everything, especially if it has to do with him. So that's that's the first insight, is, is we can see how all of these things happened that Esther and Haman could have never planned. You know, um, how to resolve conflicts. Well, find out if the president's going to be assassinated and warn him, do that, and somehow make sure that your enemy wants to kill you and is making plans to do that. And then, you know, that doesn't even make sense. But these are the elements that were worked out behind the scenes without Mordecai and Esther even knowing, let alone making happen. So you surrender to the will of God and God is going to work things for you. You don't even know about it. As Jim said today in our prayer, when you love us and we haven't even known it. The love has been there. I didn't know it. The other insight I found was an unexpected action that took place. 
And it comes from the king's instinct to, in a moment of high tension, take a stroll through his garden. To retreat to a place of natural beauty. To settle into solitude and silence and allow the oxygenated air to clear and refresh his heart and mind. It was brilliant. He doesn't just, you know, shout out curses. Um, he, he, he doesn't get into road rage or royal rage or palace rage, whatever it would be called. Um, but he goes to the fragrance and beauty and life, life that's fed and nurtured and exists without worries and cares, life that blooms around him. He goes there to take a time out or a time in, perhaps. Yes, he left the, the wine feast. That was a good idea, too. <laughs> Give me that bottle. I'm going to the garden. And, and, and come for me if I don't show up in three days. Um, when we retreat to the garden, by the way, when Jesus said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death, he was in a garden. And he had gone there because of the enormity of the weight that was crushing him. When we retreat to the garden. It's a symbolic return to our first home, a return to a time when all that God had made was still good, when there was no stress, no pain, no sorrow, no evil, and God was near. We could walk with him and talk to him. That garden, the Garden of Eden, was not destroyed or, or buried or lost in time. Rather, it was transplanted. And it's now in what Emily Herman referred to as the secret garden of the soul. That garden space is within you now. Our original calling from God was to cultivate and keep the garden, to work the soil, to, to work with the plants, and it's the same job description today uh, to cultivate the garden of our heart and the garden of the souls of, of others when we have opportunity to do that. Um, I don't know how that will about. We don't have to be like so obvious to say, hey, what you growing in your garden lately? Um, weeds, you know, they, they flourish there. Um, I have a brown thumb. Everything grows and dies and turns brown. But um, when we retreat to the garden, we're going back to that, that inner sanctum where we can find rest and peace. And it's always there. When we're under stress, when we feel attacked, when we're overwhelmed with too much to do and too little time, it's always there if we just want to take a walk with God in the cool of the day and let our spirits rest in him and be refreshed by him. I, I read this week that 
our most transforming conversations. And you know, you can have a conversation where someone says a line and you never forget it. Or it just opens up your perspective and changes everything. Our most transforming conversations combine affective and reflective elements. Now, affective refers to our emotions and mood states. So we have them. Uh, emotion is, by the way, what dominates our thoughts and energizes our actions. We think we're so logical. We think that we're Spock. And um, we only do the most logical things. And there's no human that can truly be called human who lives that way. It's the desires within our emotions that direct our actions. It's the need, the, the lack of something, of our emotions that draw us to something or, or push us along. It's, um, it's our sadness that we want to avoid. It's our joy that we want to follow. Um, this is what influences our rational mind more than anything else. Boy, you know, my four-year-old grandson understands this. Caleb, I cannot play games with you right now. But I want to. I cannot. I want you to. Well, that doesn't sway me, in, which is not true. It does, and I usually end up <laughs> not getting other things done. But, uh, and he's so cute. Now, he's, he lost a tooth last night. He's only four years old. Um, uh, my son, Scott, texts me, and he says, Caleb just lost a tooth, and he attached a photo of him. And, uh, and I said, how did that happen? You know, what the heck? And he said, uh, he was eating an apple. And I thought, you know what? That could happen to me any day now. <laughs> um, okay, so, so uh, I'm sorry. Effective um, is, not, is not just psychological. In other words, I have my emotions to, to deal with and my, my moods. It's also physiological. Every emotion has neuro, neurochemical correlates. You get under stress, and your body will release stress hormones into your bloodstream, uh, cortisol, uh, uh, adrenaline. And it happens that fast, and you don't have to tell your body to. It's like, emotion, here comes the chemistry. Uh, and it affects your entire nervous system. It, it affects every organ of your body. It affects your heart rate. If people are with you, they can see it in the expression on your face. What's the matter? What, what just happened? What, what did I miss? Right? Um, you tighten up. Uh, all kinds of physiological changes occur. We need to understand this because we need to see the wholeness of who we are. And, and our emotions are connected to the physiology. That's, that's the affective part. The reflective part refers to the thoughts we have regarding our affect, uh, regarding our emotions, regarding what's happening in our body, if we take the time to reflect. Or if our child suddenly blows up, and of course we naturally react to that, but if we just stop and ask, first of all, what is it in me that's reacting in this way, and what is my child experiencing from his or her perspective that is causing this? We reflect on it. And reflection is to 
is to gain insight into it. That's what we're after. So um, sometimes we have to wait for emotions to subside, and that's when the garden is useful. We can go there, let our emotions subside. We say, let me come back to this in a few minutes. Enter the garden, sit in the presence of God, there's lovely living things, calm down, reflect. So I, I see this with the king. I, I see this affective part as he loses his temper and stomps out. And I see the reflective part when he's, he's in the garden. So I don't know, you know how, how well he succeeded at that. But as, as contemplative Christians, we become more reflective in general. And I don't mean more analytical. You know, the, we're always asking why and then looking for answers. Uh, analyzing, examining under a microscope. Uh, What I mean is that we're curious. What is this that I'm feeling right now? What is this experience that is unfolding? What is this moment? I, I don't get it. And I'm not trying to say, why is this happening? What did I do wrong? There's no judgment involved here. Do you understand that? I'm just looking at it, and I'm, I'm curious about it. And so my, my grandson is, is upset and screaming, and I'm asking, what is this? And I'm, I'm curious to know, what are you feeling? What happened? So that I can respond to it, rather than just, if you want something to cry about, I'll give you something to cry about. You know what I mean? Um, it was incredibly thoughtless. Um, but I'm curious about what has this awakened within me? What, what is God doing with this moment? Where is his grace? I know his grace is always present, comes to me through everything. Where is, how is his grace coming to me right now? And I'm curious about that. And these are questions that I can't answer rationally and no one can answer rationally for me. So I reflect on them to, to let the insight arise. I explore whatever is is present, looking for deeper insights, deeper meaning. This last week, reading in the Psalms, I I came to Psalm 63. And everyone who has a hunger for God and read Psalm 63 can relate, because David says, my soul thirsts for you. In a weary and dry land where there is no water. Now, if what David needed at that moment, more than anything, was emotional support, if all he needed was to sit on his bed and have his wife come in and cradle him as he cried and assured him, I'm here, I'll I'll always be here, David, you don't have to worry. If that's what he needed was emotional support, well, he lived in a weary and dry land. He was the last of eight brothers. He was the runt of the litter. And you know what happens to the runt? He gets picked on by everybody. The older brother picks on the younger, the one younger than him, and that one picks on, and they all pick on the, you know, on number seven, number eight. There was no loving support coming from them. When, he, when David goes down to the battlefield and he sees Goliath for the first time, and he says, well, why is everyone afraid of that guy, that uncircumcised Philistine? First of all, he's a Philistine, and he's not even circumcised. So why is everyone afraid of him? And uh, 
his brother, his oldest brother, says, I know what you're all about. You just came down here to, to see the battle and to, and to you know, show off. And David said, what have I done now? And I'm sure he's always saying that with his older brothers. What have I done now? I have my case again. He lived in a dry and weary land. His, his wife, Michael, his first wife, the wife of his youth, looked out the window one day, saw him worshiping God, and despised him in her heart. And said, and the Bible says, and she did not have a child to the day of her death. Implying that there's no closeness between them after that. He comes home, she ridicules him, and he um, turns on her. And they get involved in what Sue Johnson calls the demon dialogues. That becomes their habitual communication. They never break from that. Um, so where's the emotional support going to come from? He says, my soul thirsts for you, O God. In a weary and dry land. And he's looking for the garden. And he finds the garden. And it's the same garden of the soul. We can return to the garden where that, that is always well watered. And to where you always find God's love in everything. Would you stand with me, please? May the Lord our God bless the gardens of our souls this week. May we look over the fence when he calls us to the gardens of others, when he has given us wisdom and love and non-judgmental kindness in order to bless their gardens as well, and at the very least with our prayers. May God refresh us, renew us in him, and spirit to spirit, may we grow and flourish. The Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.